Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study, the podcast where we read the Bible as a source of inspiration and strength to help you live into God's abundant vision for your life and for the world. Hey y'all, this is Alex, your host of Liberation Bible Study. For today's episode, I am so excited to have with me Reverend Peppa Paneagua, who is a Presbyterian pastor serving deep in the heart of Texas. Today we are going to be reading John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8, through the theme of growth. Peppa, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Peppa, it is our practice on this show to introduce ourselves, our pronouns, our work, and our identities, because we know that these always show up whenever we are engaging with these texts. Peppa, would you share with us a little bit more about who you are? Yeah, so I am white, queer pastor, um, originally from California by a brief stint uh, in Oklahoma, where I was born, um, but really consider myself a Californian. I raised there most of my life and then transplanted to Texas about 10 years ago. So I live and serve in the DFW area, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And as you know, I am Alex Patchen McNeil, and my pronouns are he and him. And I am a white transgender man, originally from the South in North Carolina, um, and now back in North Carolina after living in Boston and Washington, D.C. So returning to some of my roots. And I serve as the executive director at More Light Presbyterians and get to be home when I'm not traveling around um, leading trainings like I was yesterday uh, for this work. I'm so blessed to do. So, Peppa, um, I'm really excited to dig into this text with you, and I wondered if you'd be willing to read through the passage for the first time, and as you read, uh, the rest of us will be listening for the context of this passage and what's going on and what intrigues us when we hear it. Sure thing. Let us turn now um, to God's Word and be open to what God has to say to us. The passage comes from John 15, verses 1 through 8, and I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, so let's listen. I am the true vine, and my creator is the vine grower. God removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, God prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word. That I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, 
and it will be done for you. My creator is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. Thank you. As you read and prepared for this conversation, I'm curious what you noticed about the context of this passage and where it sits within the rest of John's gospel. Well, growing up, this passage was almost used punitively um, in Sunday school, kind of taught from a standpoint of we need to be fruit bearers. Otherwise, we'll be cast out and thrown away and useless, <laughs> which as an adult reading this now, I don't feel that way. Uh, I don't sense that same punitive nature, but in, instead, reading this in the context of the gospel, even though we're in Eastertide, this text takes us right back to the upper room where Jesus is spending time with his disciples, his dearest friends. And there's a sense of urgency. And so I hear this and I can almost hear Jesus saying, like, listen, y'all, this is what it's about. And we are called to abide together. And I hear that freshly now um, in ways that I hadn't when I was a child. So now as an adult, I see it much less punitive and more of an invitation to new relationship and deeper relationship. Mm, Yeah. It's interesting how in the punitive version, if you didn't produce fruit, it was almost like you were solely responsible for a means of production. Is that the sense of how it was shared with you as a kid? Like producing? What is producing? Well, I think in the Sunday school context, it was about producing good fruit. So, and really almost like a faith works kind of thing. I feel like we also need to name the fact that I'm a woman. And so like, there was a little bit of pressure about like producing fruit, literally. Um, (laughs) But now, you know, I think, I don't know. It almost felt a little bit like an economy sort of looking back on like childhood time, right? Where there was this expectation that we as Christians do, we always have to do something to either make the lives of ourselves closer to what God wants or to help make the lives of others closer to what God wants. I just remember there being a lot of emphasis on you don't want to be a branch that's thrown away. That's just not what you want to be. You don't want to be a branch that withers and dies. Which is, you know, it's funny because it's funny what sticks with you when you grow up um, in hearing things again. Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, I right now live out in the country on a house on seven acres. And I have to confess, I'm terrible at pruning. (laughs) I'm really bad at trimming branches and that's just not my gift in life. But what I've been noticing in the times I'm able to do it and and really pay attention to it, and my parents are really good at it. So I, I glean whatever wisdom I have from them. 
and, and thinking about the branches that are thrown away. This just occurred to me as you were speaking. When you prune something, either it's because it's already produced fruit and it's gotten to the end of its life cycle, or you're almost pruning it so that the rest of the branch may have more life, may have more nutrients. So there's a usefulness for the branches that are pruned. And in the punitive version, and even a little bit here in the text, I don't think the text is void of, you know, we'll be burned in the fire. It sounds very drastic and dramatic. But in the true sense of pruning, there's a growth element, which is what we're trying, we're sort of trying to see this passage through. By pruning something, you allow something else to grow. Definitely. Um, the image that keeps coming to my mind is my first experience with planting and caring for knockout roses. They're a rose that's really kind of common here in Texas, but they require incredible amounts of pruning. And the first time I was told, well, you need to prune those. I was like, but wait a minute, why am I cutting off either the blooms that have already come and gone or these branches that look like they have new life under them? What am I, what's the purpose of pruning? And the first time I pruned a knockout rose bush, I almost felt guilty because I took it so far back and I felt like I had really damaged it. But turns out in doing that, it flourished. And the roses, more blooms came, more life came from it. And in the context of my growing up, I think I grew up not far from the wine country. And so when we think about vines and production of fruit, quite literally, one of the things that people always say is, in order to have a successful harvest, you have to do a lot of pruning. Even when it might feel like it's too much, you have to do it because it's almost like the, the vine will let you know when you've pruned enough um, in how it produces after that. Yeah. And I'm just looking back to verse six that, that has that kind of troubling um, mention of the burning of the branches. And it says, whoever does not abide in me, Jesus is the vine, is thrown away mm -hmm. like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. And I'm just trying to look for a deeper way to understand this. I think our brains go so quickly into, you know, crime and punishment because that's how we were raised. And I think those of us who were raised around a concept of hell and fire, like anytime you hear the word burn, you're like, oh, you know, crap. <laughs> um, I don't want to do that. But also here living in the country, when we do prune branches, no one's coming to pick them up. So we have to do something with them or they're going to just like collect and collect and collect. And so if we burn them, you know, what is, what is the usefulness of the fire in that moment? Either it's, it can be for warmth, it could be for delight, like on a, on a kind of crisp evening and ultimately burning them is helping to create space for something else to grow so that we're not just living in a yard full of sticks. Totally. It, it is necessary, I think, to have those pieces that we do break off 
that we do say, okay, you've either fulfilled your purpose. I don't know. I mean, I, th- I just know that when I think of, especially growing up in California where I grew up, there were lots of hills and lots of agriculture and they would do controlled burns. It was a process where there was every season a burn that happened and it was the collection of the branches and the things that were no longer producing. And you're exactly right. It created new space for more to flourish. There's something that happens too in the soil and the air and all the things when there's a fire. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean death. It could be an invitation to new life. And I also think about like sanctification through fire being made holy through this process. Mm. Yeah. Well, just like Jesus at Passover, who is facing his own pruning and death, what feels like a death, well, it is literal death, but the, in this tiny way, Jesus is also signaling the fire is not the end of the story, that there is so much more at work deep below the surface and in the air, in the, in the processes that will allow new shoots to grow. And even saying a little later, after this section that we're reading in the next part of this conversation, that even when I'm gone, there's another one that will come after me, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, that once this fire has burned, that's not the end of the story here. Definitely. I think it is a little foretaste of resurrection. But I also, I think it's important. The thing that I love about this passage, reading it now, is the consistent use of the word abide. Mm. And just the, the choice to stay with, the choice to stay present, even with the pruning, even with the withering and the gathering and the burning, the choice to stay present and with knowing that the fire isn't the last thing. What does that, that choice to stay present and abide with mean for you in your life? Well, I think especially as a queer pastor in Texas, it is often a question I get asked as to why I stay. Um, As a Christian who is also queer, I get asked why I stay. And I think the less painful thing potentially in the short term would be to go um, and to say, okay, well, let me go somewhere where I'm not criticized or someplace where I'm welcomed and affirmed completely and 100% as I am. But the reality is, is that in the short term, while that would be less painful in the long term, it would leave me stunted and lacking in this huge piece of who I am um, and who God has called me to be. And so I stay and I abide, hoping that the fruit I bear will be something that is glorifying not only to God, but to God's vision for the church and God's vision for Christian community. One that encourages us to name the ways we might need to prune, 
name the things we might need to set aside um, and throw away and name the ways that we are open to new life. Mm. Yeah, that that's so powerful. And I also think about, for me, the process of staying present within myself when I'm experiencing a pruning, not just abiding in community, but also abiding in myself. I know that there have been times in my life where I, I can almost feel very physically or consciously like something that I thought was a part of me being pruned away, whether I was ready for it or not. And staying present to that moment where you feel so exposed when the branch is gone. I'm, you know, I imagine in the, in the rose bushes example, like that one branch thought it had like six more inches of height. And then suddenly that part is gone and you're just kind of hanging out in the wind. (laughs) And I think there's been times in my own experience where I experienced something like that and I almost want to just spiral inward and kind of, if I were a tree, like rush sap to it and like seal it off so that nothing can touch that part. I think the most powerful moments of transformation that I've gotten, that I've experienced in my life is when I've really stayed present to and noticing what's going on. I mean, just as a very concrete example, when my partner and I moved here to North Carolina, we were leaving a time in our lives in DC that that we were ready to prune and try out a different way of being. But what I wasn't aware of was just how much else was going to get pruned from me in that. And so in some ways, being here in the country, like there have been things that have been pruned that part of this vine grower image of God as the vine grower that I really noticed in this reading is that it's God's divine grower. We're not. And so we're also not the pruners. And sometimes I can consciously prune something and that's one thing, but when it's pruned from you, um, you know, we, we really have been here for two years and have been sitting with like, well, who are we now? If it's not just about our career and a particular version of success, who are we? What does that mean about our identity? And the growth that we've experienced and living without that particular model has really allowed us to like grow a new version of who we are. I say that we came to this part of the country to shed the should, shed all the things that we thought we should be doing. And in that have found a new version of life that is more rewarding and life-giving and is going to be taking us on another adventure soon to where we're going to be living. But I think we're going to that place like with the renewed spirit of who we are. So the shedding of the should um, makes me think realistically and honestly, um, the majority of my life, I did not identify as queer. And looking back on it, I don't think it's because anybody explicitly said, don't do that. But I think it was an option that I didn't consider because I saw 
the pain and the hardship and the exclusion and the walls and the barriers and all the things, right, that come with being queer in the church. And there came a point in my life where the pruning was happening whether I was ready for it or not. And the pruning ended up being such a beautiful gift because I got to life in my 30s with everything that I anticipated having and everything that the world told me I should have. By all the markers, I was successful. And while that was true, I was probably the least happy and the least familiar with myself that I've ever been. And so when I finally surrendered to the pruning and realized that I was out of ways to avoid it, the growth and the change and the authenticity that resulted as from that, I can only attribute to God. And because of that now, I think I serve more faithfully because I have a clear idea of who I am as God's beloved, and it allows me to see others in that same lens. And it's funny that you say shed the should because my therapist says all the time, stop shedding all over yourself. (laughs) Stop it. (laughs) It's the greatest phrase ever. Um, And I use that. And it's funny how often I pass that on because I just think that the practice of abiding and allowing, really allowing God to prune me as terrified as I was, um, it prepared me to then be who I am now, which is happy, healthy, excited about God and what God is doing. Mm. Yes, I, I will say that the phrase shed the should came from my dear friend, Emily Goodstein. So I want to give her all of the credit for uh, something that I think about constantly. In hearing your story and in reflecting in my own, I think the, the shoulds in my life are the times when I've tried to direct my own growth. When I've tried to play the part of vine grower and branch. I remember the vision I had for my life when I was graduating from high school, which many people's visions for their life when they graduate from high school change dramatically. But, you know, I knew I was called to ministry from the time of high school and really started vocalizing it then. And it was towards the end of high school that I started coming out as a lesbian before I identified as transgender. I was undaunted at the time by the Presbyterian's the church's stance on ordaining openly gay and lesbian people. And this was in the early 2000s. So I should have been daunted, but I wasn't because um, it didn't change for another decade or more. Um, but I, I remember thinking to myself, well, I'm going to go to college after graduation from high school and I'm going to work at the college newspaper and I'm going to get involved with this specific Um, campus ministry group and then I'm going to go to a Presbyterian seminary and then I'm going to be a pastor like it was it was so clearly laid out to me I'm like I'll just direct 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 I'm going to follow this thing that God's put in my heart and now I know how it's going to play out for the rest of my life well as soon as I got to college and started meeting other 
um, queer and non-binary and transgender people who had been so broken by their relationship with their faith and, and their families, something that they knew about themselves had been pruned away. I knew that I had to, or I was called to kind of be a witness to some other way of being that was fully integrated in being queer and Christian and that was as intertwined as a vine and branch can be. It took me on this path of then deciding to go to, you know, a seminary that wasn't Presbyterian and after seminary not going to work for a church because the ordination standards hadn't changed and, you know, taking tiny, tiny steps as I was in discernment about where I should go to follow this, you know, winding route of what God had laid before me. And, you know, now uh, almost 13 years since I graduated from college, I could not be more grateful for that. I could not be more grateful for letting go of the vision I have for my life because it's taken me through a journey of meeting people and being in places that I never could have imagined. And so, you know, there's a phrase in here, uh, not a phrase, in verse seven, it really struck me in reading it this time. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And I think in some contexts, the ask for whatever you wish is, oh, God, please give me a house. Please make me rich. Please give me the markers of success so that I can be glorified. And I was troubled by it, but, but then as I thought more about it, like it's really profound, this ask for whatever you wish. And it will be done for you if the vine grower believes that, you know what I mean? Like there, there's a dynamic relationship there. Like if, it, if the vine grower believes it will yield fruit for others, not for yourself. Well, and that's, that's I think, the key is when I look back on my life, all of the shoulds have been self-centered, self-directed and invitations to not be present. Shoulds kept me forward focused instead of present in the moment, abiding in. The shoulds in my life, I think theologically, encouraged me to look past Monday, Thursday and past Good Friday and just be like woo-woo Easter, which as I've gotten older and as I've shed the shoulds, to use your friend's phrase, I have become much more comfortable abiding and sitting and trusting. The word that just comes to mind is quieting myself and trusting that whatever it is that I am meant to do is not necessarily for me, but for others. We've talked about how I feel God calling me out and out. And I think so much of that is because I feel God saying, this is where you will bear fruit. This is how you will bear fruit. Um, and for the first time in a long time, I'm open to the fact that bearing fruit has nothing to do with how it will impact me. 
but how it will impact those around me. So it is, it is relational and so other focused, I think is the way I would phrase it. Um, And it's funny because when I was a kid in high school with all the passion and excitement that I think 16 and 17 year olds have um, coupled with a whole lot of angst, I was so hell bent on being a witness and an advocate and a justice seeker. And when I got caught up in the shoulds and the forward focusedness of life, I kind of abandoned those. And now as I sit and have learned to abide, the things that I would normally have asked for maybe five years ago are not even on the list of things that my heart wants anymore. And I think you're right that so many people would read this and say, okay, well, great. Like I would like the following things without any real thought of, other people. And I confess, I've done that. I've been there. But as I really sit with this and think about it, there's a weightedness to it that the things on my heart are the things that I, and the things that God sees and will then do are the things almost that I am even hesitant to speak because they don't feel as though they come from me that they are placed in my heart and in my soul as hopes. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say goals or tasks, but I think they're really the things that God has placed in me from the very beginning. And so now the question that I ask is how can I bear fruit and glorify you in those things. Mm-hmm. I love your paying attention to the, the weight of this. It's not a f- light and fluffy phrase, what you wish. There's some element of desire in there. And if God is love, then there is God in your desire because it is what you love. I also want to hold space in this that, like you said, some of the, the biggest wishes are desires or feelings of sense of call, which I think call is what is aligned in your desire and what the world needs, as Bonhoeffer, I believe it was, said, that my call to myself and to us is sometimes what we wish is really big and not to be afraid of that, that we don't have to think small because there's something in this, this verse, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you because you're worth it, because you are beloved, because you're a part of this vine too. I think some, so many of us try and diminish ourselves, like, oh, I just want this little thing. It's like this tiny piece of my wish. If I could just, whatever, God, then that'd be enough. But when you're producing fruit, that is a big and beautiful thing. Like think about how big the fruit is in relationship to the vine. A bunch of grapes on a vine, like that's a teeny little vine, a huge batch of grapes. I have to remind myself a lot, 
no one needs me to think small or wish small. And God particularly doesn't need me to wish small. Correct. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And that what you focus your attention and intention on, that's what you bring forward in your life, in your wishes. So it's almost a commandment to wish for the things that you're meant to bring forward in this world rather than thinking small or incremental or piecemeal or even, you know, um, just focus on yourself. But what fruit do you wish to bear? Well, and I love the next line. My father is glorified by this. Well, my creator. Sorry, NRSV says father. We'll just tweak that to say creator. My creator (laughs) is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciple. It does not say my creator is glorified in you thinking small and doing small and maybe producing fruit like once in a while. Nope. God has huge plans and has created each of us as a part of this vine on purpose and with intention and with great love and care. So who are we to say otherwise? Right. Yeah. Peppa, I'm wondering if, if we're ready to move into the second reading of this. Sure. There's so much fruit in this that we could that we could keep this road going, but I'm feeling a call to move to the second reading, and I'd be happy to read the second time as we listen for how this passage calls us to resistance. And I'm going to be reading from the Common English translation, which tries to be faithful to the original language of the text, but do so in a way that um, is also faithful to the way. English is spoken today. John 15 verses 1 through 8. I am the true vine, and my creator is the vineyard keeper. God removes any of my branches that don't produce fruit. And God trims any branches that produces fruit so that it will produce even more fruit. You are already trimmed because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. If you don't remain in me, you will be like a branch that is thrown out and dries up. Those branches are gathered up, thrown into a fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask for whatever you want and it will be done for you. God is glorified when you produce much fruit And in this way, prove that you are my disciples. As we listened for a second time, 
how does this text call us to resistance? So the thing that I hear um, in the call to remain and the call to abide really is this resistance to the idea of autonomy, that we can do it all ourselves. It is resistance to the idea that connectedness or dependence is weakness. And I think it's also resistance to the idea that we've got it all together and whoever we have put forth ourselves to be independent of God, right, is who we are and it's great that we don't need to grow or learn um, and I think it is resistance to that. And I celebrate that um, big time. I think so many times in the work of justice, we like to sit down and plan how our actions are going to go, how our work is going to lead to this outcome and who is going to be impacted and really feel like we have it all together before we take a certain action. And I've found and watched over the course of these past few years where different social movements have really blossomed and grown and thrived. It has been in times of deep distress where there's not time to make some kind of strategic plan, where it's a hashtag that turns people out into the streets or a march organized by youth responding to gun violence that gets people fired up. And I think that there's something dynamic in that, that is an attentiveness, a presence to what is going on and what is out of alignment with a vision of beloved community of where every, a place where everyone can feel safe and protected and thrive. And when you notice how out of alignment our values, our laws, our culture is with that, then listening for what is, what is the thing I am called to do? What is the thing this community is called to do? And doing that in a collaborative way leads to some of the most profound and authentic results. The, the places where I've participated in actions that are planned down to a T just feel staged um, and not as responsive to what is going on in any particular moment. Like if you're writing like a five-year strategic plan for social justice, <laughs> that feels very, um, it's at its core, not listening to what is going on as movements move. I was also noticing in your, in your reflection, I'm reading a book that has gotten a lot of praise called Emergent Strategy by Adrienne Marie Brown. And Ooh. in it, she follows the wisdom of a lot of elders who have been looking to metaphors of um, creation, of plants, of biology, um, and interworking systems as ways to see how growth and transformation happen in social movements. And I think the image of the vine is one that's very in alignment with that around even when a branch is trimmed or pruned, the other branches know the vine is a system. The branches are part of that system 
And there's all these different symbiotic processes happening under the surface around microbes and like different organisms that are like bringing nutrients and bringing information. So I think that seeing this metaphor of the vine as it was intended, which is a very concrete example of our life together and in our resistance work, trying to model that, that both abiding with and in community, even when things are hard, even when some people need to walk away or are pruned or called to different things. And at the same time, realizing that, you know, part of our work is that deep presence to what is going on in our, in our communities and, and those around us. Definitely. I think, too, what I hear in this is in terms of resistance, I also hear this call to remember that pruning and trimming leads, you have an opportunity, right? You have an opportunity to grow and develop within the system of the vine, or you can choose not to, and that leads to death, not to sound, you know, morose or anything like that, but I think that there is resistance to the idea that pain is bad. Now hear me, I don't necessarily think that pain, I'm not saying pain serves some like holy purpose and that all things blah, blah, blah. Like I'm not saying God is present in the pain. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I agree with that, but I'm not saying that God puts you through pain to use it for good. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that as we experience as kids, we have growing pains, you know, our bones and our joints and things hurt as we grow. And I also think the same is true of our souls and our spirits that in order to grow to what it is that we are called to be a part of, there is going to be pain. There will be moments of pruning and trimming and we have to resist the idea that that's bad and that that is wrong. Um, I think sometimes pain is an incredible teacher and reminds us to stay present. Pain is a symbol that we're alive. Pain reminds us that we are a system in and of ourselves called and created to be part of something bigger than each of us. And sometimes I think pain also comes when we don't live into that when we deny our connectedness and deny the fact that we belong to one another. And so I think this is a call to resist that. It's a call to trust and to engage in dependence in beloved community. I see you listing up two different kinds of pain. There's the pain that comes from the foolishness of self-direction or the idea that we can exist apart from a vine of some kind. I believe in a pluralistic world, and I don't believe Jesus is the only vine for people. So I want to name that. But being part of a vine, whether it's your family, your community, or your faith, you know, I think the, the most painful things I see in people stems from that sense of isolation and even self-isolation in some ways that lead to all kinds of pains. So that's one type of pain. And then there's the pain of pruning, the pain of being pruned, that 
something that you expected didn't happen or a way that you thought you were going to be growing or moving or changing was suddenly cut short. Some of the holiest moments of my life are right after the pruning. When I look around and it's almost that, that quiet of like the wind whistling around my shorn branches. When I start to notice the tiniest moments of life, like you can almost hear the things, the, the organisms buzzing. And I agree with you that, you know, pain and suffering are difficult to understand the why, but we are invited to see the wisdom that we gain in it. The other thing I notice in, in thinking of resistance and this idea of pruning is making peace with the idea that nothing's meant to last forever. I think so often in work of justice and resistance to empire, we sense a social movement's happening and then we, thinking like from a nonprofit organizational standpoint, like rush to, you know, make it a structure, make it official, make it last forever, particularly if something's going well. But we're reminded over and over again that in organisms, in plants, that it's almost like when you've bloomed the most, that's when it's time for a pruning. And like seeing the abundance of that cycle, that we trust that even when this bloom is done, there will be more to come, but it doesn't have to come from the same branch. And really making peace with that in a way that is about that deep sense of trust that will outlast any one particular movement, any one particular organization. Yes, I totally agree with that. What do you think, in, in thinking about presence as a practice, what is difficult about practicing presence? What is difficult about practicing presence? For me, as someone who I think my friends would say I'm pretty type A, um, <laughs> it is sometimes hard for me to stay present and not think about what my day holds, what's next, what time is it, where do I need to be, how long is, does it take me to get there, all the things right that happen in a day-to-day. Um, but what what I have found is sometimes it's really okay for me to put my phone away and just be mindful of time and then allow myself the space to say, this is where I'm called to be in this moment Um, and treat those moments in each day as however big or small. Um, So something as I would say minute as sitting in traffic as I commute to work every day, I'm in the car for two hours every day. And that is time that I think it would be really easy for me not to be present and for me to be frustrated and irritated about the fact that I'm in a car again. But what I've learned is and tried to practice is using that time to listen um, and to learn and to hear, you know, to take, to treat that time as holy. Um, And with people, I've just had to practice turning off my brain and saying, what comes next will come next. Where I'm supposed to be, I will get there. And if I'm 10 minutes late, the good news is, is I can call someone and say, hey, I'm on my way and I'll be 10 minutes late and trust that there's grace in that. 
so being present is something too that as a practice in my ministry, I think in the beginning I used to come to situations and ministry or preaching and bring who I thought I should be and bring the stories and the context and the presentation. I mean, like right on down to how I did my hair with the idea that I needed to present something other than who I was. And in giving myself permission to just show up and trust that God will meet me there and do the rest. I have found that so much more now the feedback I get is thanks for being present. And you really were so authentic and it was so visible and it gives, it creates space for others to then accept the same invitation to just be. Yeah. I I think when we, and I know when I try to over prepare for something that would mean I'm not as present in the moment of it. It's because I'm worried that I'm not enough and what I'm bringing isn't enough. So I have to show a version of myself that is less about producing fruit from the experience and more about some kind of should marker of success. And so I think it goes back to that deep stem of trust that is the, to me, one of the through lines of the vine and branch. So the thing I just wanted to say was I think sometimes too it's hard because we're not always invited to show up with our whole selves and with who God has created us to be. And I think in certain contexts and certain places, in the past, I have taken that as a way to not show up with any of myself, right? Um, But I think it's also a practice in, I would say, appropriate boundaries of Mm. what pieces of yourself to bring and to trust that as long as you are showing up with the pieces that God has created, not the pieces that you have decided are good or bad or the pieces that the world has told you are good or bad. But as long as you are intentional to show up with the, this personhood that God has placed in you, it's worthy. It's worthy of belonging in place. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Peppa. I 100% agree that, you know, we live in a world that has very um, specific and incongruent expectations of what is required of someone in the ways they show up, dependent on race, class, gender, geographic location, age, um, that are very real in operation. And you may be dismissed outright if you show up in a particular way that is going against that status quo. I think in terms of a vision, a call to resistance, I think it takes people to uphold systems. So one site of resistance that I see is looking at where are places where we have power to help influence a system so that people can show up more authentically, whether it's being part of a 
decision-making committee or being a manager of a store? Like, where are the places that we can make some room for ourselves? And I think some of that has been modeling the places we, we do have power. You know, um, as executive director, I was very conscious in the first two or three years in my job that I was building trust with people. And I looked 12 years old. <laughs> and I'm in the middle. I was, you know, still kind of early on in my gender transition. So, I, you know, people were still figuring out how to see me. And I was very careful in those times to be readable. But I remember my very first time preaching a worship service at the, at the More Light National Conference, my first month on the job scared out of boots there's like a lot of people on this worship service i gotta really show up it's the first time they're hearing me preach oh my goodness not even ordained it was it was before i'd even gotten into the sermon and i was reading the scripture and there was a particular response to the text that that congregation used that was printed in the bulletin that i had never i'd never heard that before and i get all the way through the reading and i realize that my bulletin is sitting back on the chair, like 10 steps behind me. I finished reading the scripture. I look with wide eyes out to the congregation. And then I like scurry back to my chair, scurry back to the microphone and say the, the call and response. And people laughed. I mean, I invited them to laugh with me. And it was a moment where the tension was broken actually, of expectation. People relaxed in their seats. And the chair of the More Light Board at the time came up to me, or co-chair of the board at the time came up to me afterwards and said, as a, she's an ordained pastor for many years, she said, I just loved that moment where you ran back to your seat to get your bulletin. Because I think it showed, a it was a sacred moment between us, me as as the preacher in the congregation of like such a human moment. I've really taken that with me throughout my time in this work that in a part of our call is to just show the humanity of what it means to, to be in service, to producing fruit that sometimes I forget things or, you know, with grace, ask for forgiveness. And I think part of our work of resistance is both creating space for that and then in small ways, take space for that. Definitely. I like the idea of both creating space and then taking space. Because I think for my own self, growing up white, female, and to the world, I can, I can read pretty much however you want me to read. My appearance is just like any other woman walking down the street. And I didn't realize the place that that afforded me um, until I came out and until I was in full relationship with my wife and realizing the tension of the space that I had always had and the space that I believe I'm still very much called to maintain, but holding that intention and using the privilege to then make sure that whatever space I hold is not at the cost or expense of others and maintaining that there is space for all. Mm -hmm. Do you feel ready to move into our third reading? 
around the work of liberation. Would you be willing to read the text again? And as you do, we will listen humbly for a vision of liberation that this text offers. I'll be reading again from the New Revised Standard Version. I am the true vine, and God is the vine grower. God removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, God prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them, they bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. God is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. So as we listened, what vision for the work of liberation does this text offer? What did you hear, Peppa? Well, I look at liberation in kind of two facets. Personally, this is an invitation for me to exhale and go, okay, <laughs> it's all going to be okay. <laughs> it is all all right. Um, because I am not ultimately solely responsible for maintaining the vine, maintaining myself as a branch. You know, it just takes a bit of the, like, I would say exhaustive responsibility. It doesn't completely remove our responsibility, but it it takes the exhaustive level of responsibility, autonomous responsibility off. So personally, the liberation for myself is the permission to exhale and to trust and to just abide. But I think systemically and in terms of like corporate liberation, communal liberation, It is a call to authenticity and to kind of name the space and belonging of all of us as branches without question, without further identification, but to really claim the identity as part of the vine. Yeah. Something I heard in this reading that I hear in, you, in what you're saying is, is that deep sense of trust. And trust that when the vine is working together, the fruit that it bears will be for the glory of creation and will increase creation, will increase more fruit, will, will keep the cycle of life and death and rebirth going. I think we're living in such an anxious time right now where it feels as if we are urging growth along and struggling and striving to produce fruit in a way that feels very painful at times. 
um, because the world is painful. And in this invitation, I hear that exhale as not that we stop growing, not that we stop producing fruit, but a trust that when we abide together, that the fruit comes. And secondly, to be proud of the fruit that, that we bring. You know, when, when the fruit that you're bringing forth is in alignment with what God has put in your heart as your purpose, as your passion, as your gifts, and that you alchemize that with that, that sense of belonging and trust and bring forward a fruit from that experience. I mean, I just see a lot of innovation going on right now about not just social movements, but even entrepreneurship and what people are doing for work, for producing, for community that feels really beautiful and powerful that art and music are as important to liberation as our strategic plan, <laughs> as our marches. Um, they're all bound up together. And to see that as one big, beautiful process that is bringing more life to this world. But to really own and feel proud of the fruit that we individually as part of our vine and branch have to offer is, I think, so critical to liberation. That it's both seeing the gifts of the community, but also owning the gifts that we have to bring. Definitely. And to go back to something you said earlier on, nobody benefits when we play small. And every bit of fruit that is offered is born. And it's born out of a process and it's born out of intention. And when it is, I think every piece of fruit that we bear comes from that place of asking for what it is that we want. And partnering that with what brings glory to God and it's valuable. It's important. Yeah. I love it. I think it just, it allows to grace for the seasons where we need pruning and where we need almost a time of like dormancy, if that's a word being dormant, that just like, the seasons and plant life, there are cycles. There are cycles of bearing fruit and there are cycles of waiting and hearing and listening and growing and transformation. And so leaving, I hear grace for those seasons where the fruit may not be visible, but it does not mean that it's not being created. Mm, absolutely. And that sense of trust that if we're in a season of being pruned, of being dormant, of, of resting after having produced fruit, trusting that we're not a branch by ourselves, we're part of a vine. And in what ways can our rest help give life to other branches that are producing fruit? So I think of that very tangibly around monetary gifts, like donating to, you know, if we can't make a march, how do we donate to the, the cause the march is supporting? If we are not in a place to be as actively engaged, like can we make food for people who are on the kind of taking the front lines of a particular struggle? There's so many ways to help nurture other fruit to come forth and to give ourselves grace 
and others grace when their season of producing fruit is at rest. Yeah, and to know that it is a cycle and it will get reborn again in places or times that we've been worried that the pruning is permanent. I've always been surprised and thankful when after that season, a new shoot breaks forth. And often in a direction that we might not have ever anticipated. Rarely, (laughs) if ever. (laughs) Right, right. It's funny too, because I think sometimes remaining in, I think about remaining in the systems I'm in, both as a pastor and as a Christian. And I think back to that question of why, why do you remain? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, in terms of the context of the question of liberation, especially in this context, there is a sense of freedom about it that has allowed me to faithfully stay. Um, Mm. Not because it's easy and not because there are moments that don't hurt, but because I trust that my place and space in bearing fruit um, and my work to bear fruit will eventually hopefully create space for others to do the same. Yes. Something I say so many times, particularly in folks who are having difficult conversations within their families, within their congregations, within the systems that they're trying to help move towards the belief that all are part of the vine is that Fruit takes time. Not every single conversation is going to produce a visible fruit, but that the trust I've had to develop is that every conversation plants a seed or furthers the the flowering of the bud or pollinates some of the flowers that will eventually give way to fruit. There's so much more than just, bam, a fruit is here, (laughs) but to even grow a peach or to grow a grape, like it, it's a slow process. And that all the while we're contributing towards it. We're maybe we're adding a little sunlight to something that has been nurtured, right? Or we're tending to the roots Mm -hmm. that the spirit is in those conversations, helping that nurturance along and that our role is to be a part of that dynamic process. Yes to show up and to be present. That our role is to show up and to be present and remain part of the vine when we can. As we begin to close our practice for today, something that we've been doing is to think about what we want to take with us or what will be germinating in us as a result of this reading. That was good plant talk. Germinating. What I take with me from this is two things. One, just the renewed call to stay and to abide and to remain and to be present um, in the fullness of who God has created me to be, to not be small, but also to really ask myself, Where am I called to bear fruit 
for others and what possibly might need to be pruned either within myself or might need to be pruned within systems that will allow for new growth, new understanding, further connection with the vine. I'm taking with me the reminder to not be afraid of the pruning. I really resonated with you about the trouble, my trouble of trimming branches, that it feels painful. And when I see it happening to me around something I thought was going to happen or something I believed that I can get very um, caught up in my own thoughts and feelings and forget to stay present for what may arise as a result of the pruning. The thoughts and feelings are about the fear of, of what is lost, the fear of losing an expectation for myself or for the community. And so for me, what it takes to stay present in the pruning process is to enter into it with the presence of mind to not be afraid and to trust that something will come of it. My job is to, is to abide and to stay present to noticing what new life is being brought forth. So I will be carrying that with me as we are in a season of both pruning and growth in here in the springtime. Yeah, I love that. I love it. I love it. Looking at pruning is an invitation and an opportunity rather than negative, fearful. Mm. Yeah. End of story. Right. Looking at maybe as a and yet instead of a period. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think we've been taught pruning from a scarcity model. Yes. Yes. Well, and it's funny, in my notes, I have written down that our connection to the vine and the dependence that we have is not weakness, but it is, in fact, the road to abundance. Mm. And so, yeah, I guess now I will also carry with me the invitation to look at things from an abundant perspective. Peppa, thank you so much for reading with me and for seeing what nourishment and nutrients this passage holds for our continued growth, both as our own branches and within the vine of our community. I am so grateful for the ways that you are nurturing your community and deep in the heart of Texas and bringing the wisdom of the ocean and of the vineyard to the places where you are rooted currently. Well, thank you. This has been amazing. Um, I've loved this conversation. So thank you for the time and the space. Thank you for tuning in to Liberation Bible Study. We are so glad you joined us and I hope you found strength for your journey. If this episode got you fired up, be sure to check us out online or on Facebook at More Light Presbyterians, MLP.org. Peace be with you until we meet again. Bye.